Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, I had an existential crisis about one hour ago. You say, what's an existential crisis? It's when you actually question who you are and, and, and where you are and why you're there. Um, I walked out at 9 o'clock and I thought, oh no, the church has died. Nobody's here. And I wandered around for about four minutes and I thought, oh yeah, we don't start till 10. So, an existential crisis. Who am I and what am I doing here? Have you had one recently? Because they are on the rise in our post-COVID VUCA, you don't know what that is, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. An existential crisis. Had one this past week. Um, I wasn't here last Sunday. I was on my way up to uh, Young Life's Capernaum camp at Lost Canyon. Spent the week up there in beautiful Williams, Arizona. It was phenomenal. My wife and I got to stay in the guest lodge. Um, and if you can just imagine, like, elite mountain cabin, complete with caribou heads and elk heads and moose and just, just classy. And, and along the week, I'd ask myself the question, who am I and what am I doing here? Not that it was just so extravagant, but what, what's my role here? Am I a parent of a child with special needs? Am I here to support my daughter who happens to be uh, Tucson's Young Life Capernaum area director? Um, my wife and I met through Young Life. She accepted Jesus at uh, a camp called Oak Bridge over in San Diego County. We were, we were Young Life leaders. The only problem is now we're three generations beyond. So we can name drop and people go, oh, yeah, my grandpa had him as a leader. Am I a committee member, uh, part of uh, the structure of Young Life? But the, the question all week, very innocent existential crisis and yet a real one, who am I? Who am, am I a, a pastor on vacation? What, what am I doing here? There are other more sinister forms of the existential crisis where you question your very worth and your value as a human being and you say, what in the heck am I doing now? Maybe you're in transition from a, a career. Maybe you're uh, desperately single. Maybe you're on the verge of divorce. Uh, any number of life changes that can throw us into a funk called an existential crisis. I bet you you're familiar with the existential crisis. Two major questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? And the reason why I bring that up today be, is because our text this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, that no matter what else happens in your life, no matter what the particular application of this might be, that you have a steadfast, solid anchor a solid footing for those two questions. If you are a child of God because you placed your faith in the resurrected Jesus, you have a solid answer. Again, you might need to work out the details with your father, but you have a solid answer for the existential crisis of your soul. Who am I? I am the salt of the earth. What am I doing here? I am the light of the world. I'm here to shine a gospel light 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is week 10 of our Sermon on the Mount series. We're actually slow roasting this one and actually probably going too fast, to be quite honest. There's no way I could actually unpack this and do it justice in all that is contained here in this text in Matthew 5. But we're going to do our best this morning as we unpack that. And in order to, to, to go back and get, a, get a, a footing in the context, I want to read to you the last verse of chapter 4 and the verse, first verse of chapter 5 because it's meaningful, because I want you to understand something about you. This is what it says, great crowds followed him, being Jesus, from Galilee and the Decapolis. Let me just tell you, that's up in the north of Israel. And it was known for being rural, undereducated, country bumpkins. These were lower middle class and lower class Jews. He goes on to say something else. And from Jerusalem and Judea. Those are the elites. They're the special ones that are educated in more classy, upper middle class. And from beyond the Jordan. So you got this mixed multitude of wealthy and cultured and uh, impoverished and uncultured. And yet they're all following Jesus and it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. The, the idea here, and the reason why I wanted to point that out, is Jesus is talking to all kinds of Jews. Run-of-the-mill, down-to-earth, air-breathing people. From the undereducated, lower socioeconomic, all the way up to the educated, cultured. A mixed crowd from all over Israel. And I think what we can learn from that immediately is no matter where you come from here in Pima County, whether you're living in a trailer down the hill or a multi-million dollar house up the hill or something else across the hill, whatever Jesus is about to say applies to all kinds of people, all kinds of Jesus followers. It's not to one, one class or one kind of individual, but to everyone who would follow Jesus. And I think that's really important. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in today, the call is for you and me. He begins with the blessedness of these eight kinds of individuals or, or, or eight qualities of a single individual. Um, these are the Beatitudes that we've been unpacking over the last eight weeks. Uh, those who mourn, a poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says they are blessed right now. They are blessed. Even if you go, that's, that's a contradiction. We, Pastor Tyler talked about the, the blessedness of the persecuted last week and why they are still blessed, even though they're marginalized, some imprisoned, tortured, or even murdered, and yet right now they are blessed. But then also, every single one of these beatitudes has a future promise. And the idea is this, that these, this kind of person is blessed right here and right now. 
They are flourishing today and will be blessed forever. Now, here's why that's important to our text today is because of this. And you might want to write this down, even though I didn't put that in your fill-in-the-blank, but with great privilege, because those who embody the Beatitudes are privileged. The promises are overwhelming. They are flourishing as human beings, they are flourishing right now, and they've got great, great promises for all eternity. With great privilege comes great responsibility. This is what Jesus says Matthew 5 13 through 16. You, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Just so you know, he's not talking about the loss of adoption. I've said it before, God has no unadoption program. He does not give his kids back to the state. And yes, I mean by this, once saved, always saved. There. Cannot be unadopted, period. But he is talking about the responsibility of his followers and how worthless it would be if we cease to function as what we really are. He goes on to say, you, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to you. No, that's not what he said. So whatever you're doing cannot be for self-glorification. Look at me, look at me. But they might give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, why did I double the you in both metaphors? The reason is that in the Greek, both yous are emphatic. You go, that's a big word. Emphasis. Meaning you and you alone. Nobody else is going to do this. It's you or nothing. Now, it's fascinating the metaphors that he chooses, uh, salt and and light. We're going to talk about that, but I wanted to let you know that Someone else had been called the light. Jesus had not yet taken this title for himself, but the light metaphor and the city on a hill metaphor had already been given to Israel, and they failed. It's found in in Isaiah 42, 6. I'm the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And then a few chapters later, Isaiah 49, 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the end of the earth. Now, I actually believe that God has a future for the Jews. But guess what? Right now, you're it. You're it. It's really the bottom line of our message. You want to fill in the blank here. Not plan A, nor plan B. 
but plan only. We don't show up as salt and light, game over. Just as simple as that. You're it. Not plan A, nor plan B. Plan only. I want you to think about this. Normal, everyday, down-to-earth followers of Jesus. The salt of the earth and the light of the world. Because chances are you don't have too high of an estimation of yourself concerning this. Chances are you have much too low an estimation of yourself concerning this. In fact, it almost feels uncomfortable and blasphemous. I am the light of the world? Whoa, 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 that's what Jesus said about himself. Yes, he did. But before he even said it about himself, he said it about his followers. You are the salt of the earth. You and you only. Listen, by this time, great thinkers had been dead for 400 years. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the rest. People that that modern philosophers still look back to and study and go, somewhere in their writings has to be the the answer to the metaphysical crisis of the world. The existential crisis that we face. Let's go back and read the classics. We still look to them. And guess what? Jesus was well acquainted with them and others. That the world goes somewhere in there. Jesus also knew that the Renaissance was coming and the Enlightenment, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century, uh, science and technological breakthroughs, philosophical breakthroughs that would come in these ages. Men like Galileo, Da Vinci, Newton, Bacon, and so forth. He knew the past and the future. The ones that the world looks to, to solve all the problems that we're facing in society and in the planet. And Jesus didn't pin any hope on any of those guys, those scientists, those thinkers, those philosophers. He pinned it on you and I. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not plan A or plan B, but plan only. But question, what does this salt and what does this light actually mean? Let's begin with salt. There's so many ideas in history and culture and science and in the scriptures. For instance, first off, we discover that salt was covenantal and binding. They say that, uh, and this is good, good history, that, that uh, individuals, when they wanted to make a covenant of peace, um, they would take from their salt bag and they would trade salt. Or they would sit down and they would share their salt at a meal. And even if they were enemies, at that point they were expected to treat one another as friends. You have this in the Pentateuch. The law of God, Leviticus 2.13, this has to do with us and God. In enmity and making peace with God, where Leviticus 2.13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant, which is used as a promise and a guarantee, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Because you're in a transaction and a covenantal relationship of peace with a God that you have offended. So it is covenantal in binding. Secondly, it's medicinal and purifying. It was used as medicine 
We see this in childbirth, um, that children were washed with water and then rubbed with salt as uh, an antiseptic. Ezekiel 16.4, God talking in metaphors about, about baby Israel and how God adopted a people that were, were not his own. And, and describing that example, Ezekiel 16.4, and asked for your birth on the day that you were born. Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. Israel was, uh, in essence, a bastard child. But God came in and adopted her. And God is the one that cut her umbilical cord and washed her with water and rubbed her with salt and wrapped her in swaddling clothes. God took care of his people. And then we see that it's essential for life. This is obvious. Uh, you know that you can drink yourself to death and not with alcohol. You can drink yourself to death with water if you drink too much of it and not enough electrolytes, specifically sodium. Did you know that? That there have been people in these mountains that actually had plenty of water. They sweated too much and replaced it with too much plain water and they drunk themselves to death. It's called hyponatremia, overhydration or water poisoning where the cells swell with water because the salt balance in the tissues is off. And you can die from that. We know, everyone knows, savory and flavorful. My wife, when I cook a magnificent meal, and she goes, how do you do that? You want to know my secret? You want to know the secret to restaurant food? And it's not just heat and acid and, you know what it is? Salt and fat. Dude, when you're going out to a restaurant and paying big money, and you're like, how do they do this? Salt and fat. Add more salt, add more butter. You're there. Yeah, boom. Wow. Um, true story. <sighs> Savory and flavorful. But I believe the number one most clear analogy that Jesus is getting at, because I think all of those are nuance what this salt and saltiness means but it's this, it's the ultimate preservative of Jesus' day. There's no refrigerators, no ice for an ice chest or an ice box. Salt and salt only. So you have a, a cow and you want to actually cut it up and you can't eat it all at once. What do you do? You dry it with salt. You got fish, they're going to go rotten real quick. You dry them with salt. Or you soak them in brine, which is salt water. Salt. One historian said it this way, the single most common preservative agent ever used, and it is by far the most common seasoning. And I believe that is the heart of what Jesus was getting at. Here's my definition of salt, if you want to fill in the blank. A savory, life-giving, unchanging preservative savory, life-giving, unchanging, preservative. That's who you are. That is what Christ has called you. That's your identity in this world. And the way that works in the real world is that when a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit walks into a room, they are not a thermometer that reflects the temperature of the room. They are a thermostat. They change the temperature of the room. President Calvin Coolidge told a story, true story, where he went into a barber shop. He's waiting for his haircut. 
And a strange gentleman walked in that was vaguely familiar. And instantly the conversations changed. The atmosphere in the room changed. People spoke with hushed undertones. The man got his hair cut and then departed. Most of the people didn't know who he was. It's then that Calvin Coolidge realized he had actually been to one of this man's revival meetings. The man was none other than D.L. Moody. A man of God walked into the room, and the whole atmosphere of the room was transformed in such a manner that Calvin Coolidge at the end said that that haircut in that barber shop was ultimately like a religious experience or a cathedral. Because a Christian with the Holy Spirit walked into that room and the conversation changed. A living example of eternal life. Conversations that are going on, whoop, suddenly. They don't even know what they're saying, but when the Christian walks in, they go, "Uh uh-oh. They might even hate you for that. But the preserving impact of the man or woman of God's presence is felt in that room. Some will be turned off by it. Others will be turned on. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The salt impact is going out from us. It's emanating wherever we go, whether you believe it or not. Whether you're aware of it or not. Whether Calvin Coolidge writes about you or not. It is coming out of us. He goes on to say, for we are all the aroma. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other fragrance from life to life. And that's why sometimes there is persecution. Last week's sermon. Salt has that effect in this world. And it is my essence as a Christian. Salt answers the question, who am I? My existential crisis, who am I? I am the salt of the earth, a savory, life-giving, unchanging, preserving force in this world. Christians are not the problem. Christians are the solution. They've been adding flavor and arresting decay for 2,000 years. Amen. What is this light? Can I give you the definition? That which makes clear and visible. That which makes clear and visible. And and we are the light of the world. We are the ones. Salt is, is by essence salt. It is who we are. Light is what we do. It is the message that we offer so that God's redemptive plan of the ages and an offer and an invitation to put your trust in Jesus, to believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins is made clear to others first by good deeds, earning the right to speak and then to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with respect, 1 Peter 3.15. 
earn the right. This is what light is, that which makes the gospel message clear and visible. And let me say it again, Christians have been adding flavor, giving life, arresting decay, and pointing others back to Jesus for 2,000 years. Now, Christians have taken the brunt of much criticism. For instance, a few years back, Christopher Hitchens says that religion is the problem. That is the source of all societal ills. Dogmatic, rabid atheist. Well, guess what? The research states quite the opposite. Um, this is Rodney Stark. You ever hear of Stark? Uh, his, historian, Christian, a uh, little bit of apologetics in his history and his research. This is from his book, America's Blessing, How Religion Benefits Everyone, Including Atheists. You want to hear what his research, what he found by studying American history, American culture, and Christianity in the West? This is research. He's not just making this up. Here's what he discovered. Uh, religious people, and that's a generic for most often Christians. They're the primary source of secular charitable funds that benefit victims of misfortune, whatever their beliefs. Meaning, it's the spiritual, the religious people that give to others, even if they're not in their tribe. Dominate the ranks of blood donors and other pro-social behaviors. Are much less likely to commit crimes. Far more likely to don donate their money and time to socially beneficial programs and to be active in civic affairs. Enjoy superior mental health, are deemed happy or less neurotic and far, far less likely to commit suicide. Enjoy superior mental health. I already read that. Enjoy superior physical health. Have an average life expectancy more than seven years longer than the irreligious. Read more than their irreligious friends and neighbors. Less likely to believe in the occult, UFOs, Bigfoot, etc., more apt to marry, less likely to divorce, report higher degrees of satisfaction with their spouse. Religious husbands are far less likely to abuse their wives and children. Much contrary to the story that religion creates systems of oppression in the home because of male patriarchy. It's not how it actually works. Religious fathers are more likely to be involved in youth-related activities such as coaching teams, leading scout troops, etc., Religious couples enjoy sex more often. Women are more likely to have regular orgasms. Sex happens more frequently. They are also far less likely to have an affair. Um, and on and on and on. I got through about two-thirds of the list. But the idea is this. Salt and light works. It arrests decay. It points people back to God. And from a relationship with God, there is goodness and societal transformation. That is who you are. Not plan A or plan B, but plan only. So who am I? What am I doing here? Salt and light. We and we alone are the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. But Jesus also indicated that there can be dysfunctions with salt and with light. Did you catch that? 
But if the salt has lost its saltiness, if, and it's a possibility, salt can lose its saltiness, well, not in the real world, can't happen, sodium chloride is sodium chloride. It can become mixed and impure, though. And when a bad batch of salt is noticed, what ha- what's it good for? Don't throw it on the garden plants. You will kill your plants with it. Don't put it on your food. You don't know what impurities are in there making it not salty. It can be dysfunctional, and in the same way, light Light that is lit, it's actually burning precious resources, wax or oil and wick material. And yet it's covered. It's foolish. It's a waste. It's dysfunctional. And in ending this morning, I want to just talk to you about three kinds of dysfunctional salt and light. Things that can enter into our lives, our thinking, and throw our impact and our witness off track. And the first is this. Salty salt is present salt. Salt that is kept in the pouch or in the salt shaker in the storehouse cannot do its job. It's still salt, but it's sequestered, it's hidden, it's stored away, it's no good. It's not doing any good for anyone or anything. So salty salt must be present salt. Notice Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You can't hide in your commune. You can't hide in your church. You can't hide in your family. You can't hide in your pew. You must get out of the salt shaker and be present in society. One of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century is that evangelicals said, if you're going to be really godly, this was the invitation at camp. First one, believe. Get saved. Make sure you go to heaven when you die. And then secondly, if you're really good, commit your life to full-time ministry. Super Christian Christianity. you got to be a pastor or a missionary or marry one. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So there was a lower class of Christians that became CPAs. Really low public school teachers. Ew, what, what uh, do you have in common with Satan? We were told that if we sent our kids to public school, we were sending them to the devil. Christians pulled out of society in the 40s and the 50s. They all gathered in a big salt shaker to protect and to hide. Well, you know what? That's not our heritage. It's not true. It's not what called, God called us to do. Jesus said... I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Jesus prayed that in John 17. He didn't want us extracted from the society. You know, one of the, the, the individuals in church history that had this squared away better than most, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was famous for restoring the priesthood of all believers. So he went up against guys like John Tetzel and, and the, the Catholic Church, that they were super Christians. They were the elites. They were the ordained. Everyone else was just kind of a second-class Christian. Riffraff. And Martin Luther, it's one of his statements. He says, 
over my dead body. That's nonsense. That's not what the scripture teaches. And he was prepared to die for that. I love this quote from Luther from his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, not about this text, but he actually said this, if you are a manual laborer, meaning you are not a professional paid Christian, you are not Tyler or Jim, you don't have a seminary degree, you've never been ordained by a church or denomination, he says if you are a manual laborer, you find that the Bible has been put into your workshop, into your hand, into your heart, it teaches and preaches how you should treat your neighbor. Just look at your tools. And then I love some of the professions that he's getting at here. The needle or thimble, your beer barrel. So he's even saying that the, that the beer brewer that's a born-again Christian, boy, that's an interesting one for us teetotalers. The beer brewer is a man of God, and that is a holy Christian vocation. Yup. Your goods, your scales, your yardsticks are measure, and you will read this statement inscribed on them. Everywhere you look, it stares at you. Nothing that you handle every day is so tiny that it does not continue to tell you this. If only you will listen, and here's what they tell us. Here's what our vocations, what our careers, no matter what it is you do, you don't have to be a preacher or a pastor. Whatever you're doing, something in your job is teaching you back these words. Friend, use me in your relations with your neighbor just as you would want your neighbor to use his property in his relations with you. Priesthood of all believers, no matter what your career, no matter what your occupation, no matter what your vocation, all are on equal footing. Not just the preachers, pastors, and missionaries. The apostles and prophets. You are the light of the world. Get present. Today, we end in a little bit here. You're going to go to work tomorrow. And you might even have an existential crisis and go, what, what good is it that I'm doing? Man, there's no better place to serve God than the place in which he puts you down. Wherever you are, be all there. Recognize, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. And you are present in society if you're not Get out of your cocoon. Join a club. Get around the world and non-believers because salty salt must be present to do its job. Here's the second thing. Salty salt is pure salt. Jesus says, but if the salt has lost its taste, I said this before, it can't become unsalt, but what can happen? Well, there were places where salt could be collected that were already contaminated, for instance, with lime that is very white, or gypsum, and the like. Other substances that it looks like salt, but try it, and it is polluted. I was in White Sands, New Mexico about 10 years ago, and I was actually on that sand, and I go, there's no way that this, thing, this can just be sand. And so I licked it. One of the dumbest, kind of in, inconsequential, but it was one of the dumbest decisions. I was like, grit in my teeth for weeks. Listen, it wasn't salt. I mean, I thought for sure it was going to at least be sugar. But it was just like nothing but grit. It was just stupid, and it's, it's non-salty salt. Salt cannot be non-salt. It can be sickly. It can be 
sinful, mixed, shallow, immature, um, for salty salt to be salty, it has to be pure. And watch this. It has to be pure in what actually matters. I grew up in a, in a branch of Christendom that liked to make much about what the girls wore. We'd actually go to a competition as a church group. And some church groups in that tribe, they didn't let their girls wear shorts. Come on, they're sixth graders. Is everyone a kinky pervert looking at sixth grader girls' legs and saying that's wrong and immodest? So they wore what were called culottes. Culottes in the name of Christian purity. And guess what? I don't know anyone that had to wear culottes that's walking with Jesus today. It's like a whole tribe majoring on, on minors and minoring on majors. Off track, like, would you actually care about what? And then they would tell us, like, why we need to burn Elvis records. I didn't listen to it. I didn't have records. But Elvis was obviously just sinister and creepy and evil. So we'd burn records in the name of Jesus, but never teach the Bible. And then the same people teaching those things have an affair. And it's just kind of crazyville with some of these people of minoring in majors and majoring in minors. And the reason why I tell you this is that we've got to actually get around to caring about what really matters, which is character. I care that you vote this week in the primaries. I do care. But not even close to how you treat your wife. I don't give a flying rip who you vote for compared to how you treat your husband or your children and the aroma of Christ coming out of your life in the place that it really matters. So much more about character than belief and politics. And yet we just get gorked out about these minor issues, important, but minorly important. We have got to be pure where it really counts. What really counts? Go back to the Beatitudes, poor in spirit. That you mourn your own sinfulness. That you are meek when challenged. That you hunger and thirst after righteousness. That you are a merciful person. That you are one who is pure in heart. That you are a peacemaker. Even if it costs you persecution, that's what really matters. That is pure salt. Jesus said, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but that you'd keep them from the evil one. Now I've got something that I'm going to skip over. This is terrible. I'm taught not to do this. I really want you to read a letter to Diognetius. It's an apologetic from the second or third century a description of Christian character in society. Maybe we'll post it online or something, but for time I need to skip it. But the idea is this. For 2,000 years, true followers of Jesus have been exemplifying this quality. They are in the world. They dress like it. They use the language of it. They use the musical flavors and styles of it but they are distinctive. They don't swap wives. They don't beat their kids. 
They don't cuss up a storm when they hit their finger with a, a hammer. They are distinctive. They're in the world, but not of the world, even in the second and third century. Salt, salty salt is pure salt in what actually matters. Let me give you the last one, luminous light. What's, what can go dysfunctional about that? Well, Jesus says you light a light and you put a, put a bushel over it. You, you hide it. You don't do anything that can be identified as Christ-like. You're selfish. You're lazy. I don't know what it is. But you don't actually shine back on the Father by your lifestyle. Let him show by his good works that people might glorify the Father that's in heaven. Philippians chapter 2, Paul would say, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom that you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I want to be proud of you. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him. When do we get around to earning the right to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? We're supposed to let our good works so shine. Before we make a declaration, we're supposed to earn the right. It's all over the New Testament. And yet we want to just go to warfare on Facebook. How about showing up and doing something that shows that you genuinely care and you're invested? And earn the right. Can I tell you one thing that I saw this last week at Capernaum camp? Uh, Tia, Dominic, Holly Roden, who's home, sick in bed. She's supposed to be a part of the worship team today. She's wiped out. Uh, leader. David, where's David? David, you here? Serving somewhere? Man, buddies and leaders from our church. 24-7, serving with our friends with disabilities. And I'm telling, like, cleaning up accidents, like number two, Loving them, serving them, five days nonstop. The salt of the earth, the light of the world. Are you kidding me? I want to know what the secret to that is. Can I tell you something that happened a few months ago? I was nominated for a special award, uh, Southern Arizona foundation. This is not a Christian organization. They called me up and said, hey, you've been nominated for a special award because Journey Church that you lead is such an inclusive uh, disability community, and the word has gotten out. And I say, wow, I don't deserve that. It's not me, it's we. Did you know that this last couple months, uh, Janet and Tyler and Sarah have been running a membership class for our friends with disabilities, adaptive membership class, because if they believe in Christ, they are members of the universal church, and that's all that it should take to be members of the local church. And this is the only church I've ever heard about ever doing that. 
And so I got the, the award and was recognized. But in my recognition speech, I got a chance to pass the glory back to Christ because I am not by nature a good person. I'm a jerk. I'm a jerk. If anything's good in me, it's because of what Christ has done in me. I got to pass the glory back to Janet Payne and Janetta Holt for coming to me and offering a ministry that changed our church. And the aroma of Christ is spreading forth from this place. Oh, I'm talking about it. Here's the beautiful little award. It does say my name on it, but this goes to Jesus. This goes to Janet and Janetta. This goes to Timothy, who's been through so much that, that influenced my my view of life and ministry in the kingdom of God. This goes to Journey Church. This goes to the staff like Sarah and Tyler and Janet. And this goes to Journey Church. This is a church that is earning the right to be heard. Of all the other things that we do that are on mission and vision, this is something about our church that's so unique and so salty and shiny. And guess what? There's more to come. More to come. Last thing that I'm just going to say about this text is the you, the you, you are, you are, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. They're not only emphatic, meaning you and you only, but they are plural. Meaning, yes, you are an individual grain of salt. You are an individual ray of light. Do your job, but you're not alone. You know the power of salt when it all gets together when it all gets together and gets spread out of the salt shaker into the world together. And not just Journey Church, local church, but the universal church. All those other individuals, and we might differ in our, in our uh, uh, religious or spiritual DNA, but if they are truly devoted followers of Jesus, they are our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We are not alone. You are not alone. But an individual ray of light, how about a laser beam? How about a floodlight of individual believers all around the world together shining for Christ? Lord Jesus sent us out like this. He said in John 8, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. John 20 says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. In Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Matthew 28, 18 through 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. John 14, 12, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works then these will he do because I am going to the Father. Men and women, we are in the age of greater works. This is our identity. Who am I? What am I doing here? What are you doing here? You are the salt of the earth. Go and do and be who you are. You are the light of the world. Shine and give the glory back to the Father. And let's see what God does in our lives, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our marriages, and in our city. Father, this is our ambition. Jesus, you've given us great, great honor to declare these things about us. Oh, that we would 
actually be salty salt and luminous light, that we would live up to that which you say is true about us. That's our ambition. Holy Spirit, would you actually make personal application right now? Who is it in our world that we need to be a preserving, uh, savory expression of Christ for and to? Lord, let it begin in our marriages. Let it begin in our families, with our children, even those who are estranged and walking away. Let us continue to be uh, Jesus to and for them, Lord, our co-workers, our bosses, even the ones that drive us crazy, that we would be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Lord, in our community, are there more things that we should volunteer for? Are there more projects that we should adopt as individuals, as small groups, as a church? Father, show us and lead us. We're waiting upon you. We want to be a part of your kingdom, and we want to be a part of your harvest. So, Lord, send us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.